Welcome to the Heal Podcast, where we believe God heals people in the way that brings Him the most glory and brings us closest to Him. Whether you've received healing, you're in the fight of your life, or you gave up on God a long time ago, you are welcome here. As you come to the table, listen with an open mind, knowing everyone's journey is unique, but pain is our common language. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Heal Podcast. My name is Tara Bradham Denai, and I am your host. And just a quick reminder if you haven't heard about it, check out the Heal community. If you go to thehealministry.com, it has instructions on how to download it. We have our new app where you can connect, get a free devotional each week. Everything is totally free, and we want to start building community surrounding everything that we're doing here and trying to live for the Lord amidst what's going on in our bodies. And today on the show, we have Nikki Hardy. I am so excited to introduce you to her. It is March now. Happy March. Yay, flying by. And March is actually Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. So that is part of Nikki's journey. She's going to be sharing that with us today. She is also an author and she is a podcast host. She is the host of the Chemo Chair Prayers podcast, which I highly recommend. Her book is called Breathe Again, How to Live Well When Life Falls Apart, and it's a practical guide. I loved it so much that we are actually doing it for our Pain to Praise book club for the month of March, and so I'll be talking to Nikki live on Instagram. You can follow us both with our handles in the show notes, and we're going to be going through her book to help us live in more freedom. Nikki also has a devotional coming out next year for women going through cancer, and she has a very fun announcement in the middle of this podcast, so you're going to have to wait to see what that is, but even more opportunities to connect and be encouraged together. I think Nikki is down to earth. She has a beautiful accent, a beautiful heart, a surrendered life to the Lord, and you are going to learn and grow so much with her, I hope. So here is Nikki Hardy. Okay, to start out, I have to ask you a very serious question. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. So I did this, maybe because I'm sentimental, but I reading your book, I ended up making tea because you kept making these tea comments. And so right here, I have for you, I made tea instead of water for this interview. So how do you make your tea and what is the proper way to make a good cup of tea? Well, first of all, I saw that you have a little string. So you're probably drinking a herbal tea. Yes. When we say a cup of tea in England, we mean a kind of English breakfast tea with milk or um, something like that, a black tea with milk, maybe an Earl Grey or a Lady Grey, but we're not talking chamomile, you know, or something, chai tea, something, (laughs) you know, fancy. And so... The proper way would be to make your tea in a teapot. So you have to boil the kettle. Mm, That takes time. None of this microwave heating your water. (laughs) You have to warm the pot so that your, you know, your hot water stays hot and you don't, you know, drop the temperature suddenly. But really what I do when it's just me, I will boil the kettle, put a tea bag in a mug, fill it with hot water, leave it steep for just a little bit, take that out and then add some milk. And so I probably have a good four or five of those a day. Wow. Okay. So you are from England, but you don't live there, right? No, we live in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then is your husband from England as well? Yes. We moved over here um, coming up for 15 years ago and we came to plant a church. So we started City Church in here in Charlotte yeah, just over 14 years ago now. Wow. that's That must have been a whole crazy journey on its own. That was a whole crazy thing on its own. Yes, our kids were um, nine, six, and three turning four. So it was the whole shebang. You know, moving is one thing with small kids. Moving states would be one thing, but moving across the Atlantic. And we kind of thought that culturally it wouldn't be that different, but mm-hmm. boy, oh boy, it's, it's the, very different. The deep South, right? Where you are? Yes. Yeah. Deep-ish. And, um, 
you know, we might speak the same language, but we don't speak the same language. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm really curious because what people say, and I've been to Europe, I have not been to England, but that Europe is post-Christian now. And so I'm, I'm curious, were you and your husband both Christians there? And then it's very interesting to come and plant a church in the U.S., which is, quote, I know everyone and their dog is a Christian, supposedly, but... It's very interesting. I had this conversation with my Australian friends where it's it's kind of a cool thing to be a Christian or it has been in the past. I think that is changing in the US, but I don't feel like that is in Europe. I do agree that it's pretty post-Christian, especially in London where we were. We didn't come to faith until the first year of our marriage. So um, we would both say that we grew up Christian with a lowercase c. You know, mm. we, were, we weren't Muslim or Hindu or Jewish or nothing. We felt, you know, believed in God and felt spiritual up mountains and had been raised a little bit in the church. My husband had gone to chapel twice a day, every day at boarding school since he was seven. And I had been to church a bit with my family. So I wouldn't have said that I was not a Christian, but I didn't know who Jesus was, didn't have a relationship with God. But we came to faith in the first year of marriage. And I think really the difference is, is that the UK is where the America, I think, is going. So yeah. uh, where England was 100, 150 years ago is probably where the US is now. And obviously different yeah. parts of the US um, in different stages of that. But in England, the question people are asking, is there a spiritual side to life? Is God real? Who is Jesus? Here, the question is, can I trust the church? Ooh. And so I feel like what is happening here is that the younger generation are seeing a lot of hypocrisy. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of division. And they're not necessarily rejecting God, but they are rejecting organized religion. And I think that did happen at one point in the UK. But where there's life now, it's on fire in the UK, but otherwise it's dead as a doornail. And you've got three old ladies and a dormouse coming to church on a Sunday. But where there's life, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. So then how did you come from that to feeling prompted to come plant a church in North Carolina? <laughs> yeah, well, we both originally left our jobs and... My husband went into a drug and alcohol rehab nonprofit working with an American couple. And I went into teach training and retrained to be a science teacher. We um, got pregnant and then he felt called into ministry. So was working with our church, felt called uh, to get ordained. And our church in London had a relationship with a group of people here in the US in Charlotte who really wanted a church with the same DNA as our church in London. Mm. And that's how it all started. Yeah, awesome. Okay, wanted to hear that story because I didn't know that part. And then your book, we're going to talk a lot about your book, which is called, let me read it, Breathe Again, How to Live Well When Life Falls Apart. But your book has an interesting format where you, you kind of hear parts of your story as you go through. Right. And so for the listeners sake, will you take us through a little bit chronologically, I guess, starting with losing your mom and your sister to cancer and then you getting diagnosed with it? What surrounded all of that? Yeah. So my mom was diagnosed when we were still living in England. We had um, just moved to Oxford um, or we were in the process of moving to Oxford um, to go to seminary there. And she was in Vancouver, Canada, where she had moved about 20 years previously to marry my stepfather. And so we had this long distance relationship where I was going backwards and forwards in the same way my sisters were. I'm one of three. And unfortunately, she died after about 14 months. She had small cell aggressive lung cancer. And then about six years later, once we had moved to Charlotte, my sister Jo, the middle one, I'm the youngest of three, 
was also diagnosed. Same thing, small cell aggressive lung cancer. And so again, I had this long distance relationship of coming backwards and forwards from the UK back to Charlotte to visit her. And um, she passed away after only 15 months at just 43. And then believe it or not, six weeks later, I was diagnosed. Now mine wasn't lung cancer like theirs. And um, I hope I can say this on air, but mine was rectal cancer. And it was a complete shock out of the blue. As far as I was concerned, I was fit and I was healthy. I had just run a marathon and it felt like the family heat-seeking missile of death had locked in on me, mm-hmm. or more importantly, my rear end. And so <laughs> it completely threw us. How old were you? I was 42. Okay. Yeah. So we, at that point, our kids were 14, 12, and nine. They were old enough to understand. And as far as they were concerned, people who got cancer died and died quickly. Yeah. So it was like a bomb went off in our lives. Yeah. What did you do? How did you tell your kids? I know you talk about this in the book, but for a parents with that, right, they watched their aunt and their grandma pass away super fast. And now their mom gets this diagnosis. How do you deal with that? Well, given their ages, we decided that they were old enough to understand. And we wanted to foster a a culture and environment, if you like, where they felt safe to ask questions, where they felt we were honest with them. And we decided not to operate in kind of half truths or only tell them some of the story to protect them. We told them what we knew. And so I remember the day when we sat them around the kitchen table And it was the table that had come with us from England and, you know, it was beaten up and had seen everything from kind of Lego starship models to glitter glue and guns and all that kind of stuff. And we sat around it in our normal dinner time positions. I don't know about your family, but we always sit in the same places. Mm -hmm. And um, we said, you know, the colonoscopy that mum had. And up until that point, me having a colonoscopy, had been a bit of a joke, you know, Mm -hmm. you go through this prep and it involves lots of toilet humor. And, (laughs) and so it, it had been a bit of a joke, but we sat them down and said, they've found a tumor and they don't know what it is. And it's either cancer or lymphoma. And that's all we knew. So that's what we told them. And we said, they're going to find out what it is and what it means. And it was Sophie, our middle, our um, how old was she? She was 12. She looked me in the eyes with her big brown eyes and said, mommy, are you going to die? And so I said, I looked at her and then I kind of included the others in my gaze. And I said, well, someday I will, Hmm. but I hope and I pray not from this, but no matter what God is with us and he is good. And I think looking back on it, that pep talk was just as much for me as it was for them but what we tried to do in that moment was just say to them, you can ask anything you want. We will be honest with you. We will um, not hide anything from you. And that was, it was a difficult decision, but it was a brave decision that worked for us. And I'm not an expert on talking to children about cancer, but it, it was the right decision for us. Yeah. And then on that, what were you going through in this? Because you're the one who has seen your sister and your mom die. So what goes through your mind with your faith? Was it a roller coaster? Did you fight fear? Oh, yes. All the above. I mean, one minute I'm like, you know, I've got my stiff and perfectly waxed upper lip. I'm strong. <laughs> I'm healthy. I'm going to be fine. I've got my God and my faith. And the next minute I'm, what the heck God, after all we've done for you, we've come Mm -hmm. over to America, we've given up our jobs and this, are you mad at me? You know, what is going on? And, and so, yes, it was a complete roller coaster. And I think in the back of my mind, I thought I was going to be okay. But then it was one of those moments where it happened frequently where I'd suddenly go, oh my goodness. I have cancer. 
It was like it would, mm-hmm. the penny would drop again and again yeah. and again because um, it just felt so surreal. Mm-hmm. What stage was it? And then what did you start doing for treatments? It was stage three, 3B, which basically meant it had made a bid for freedom. When it's stage two, it's kind of contained within Mm -hmm. the organ or the area. So it had made a bid for freedom and it was in my lymph nodes. And um, I started with chemo and radiation and the chemo was just these pills that were like the size of horse pills (laughs) um so i was taking pills every day and going to radiation every day and then i had surgery where they completely replumbed me so i um had the tumor removed and all that and then i had an ostomy bag where I could walk, talk and poop all at the same time. And um, amazing, I mean, it really gave me respect and awe for not just the medical profession, but people who have any kind of permanent medical device, Mm -hmm. whether it's a prosthetic, a diabetic pump, an ostomy bag, because we, we underestimate what they deal with Mm -hmm. you know it's an amazing thing to have a diabetic pump but it's constantly there it constantly needs tending to and it's it's an invasive thing you said in your book like you're scared people would hug you and burst it right yeah I didn't I hadn't had this before and um it was difficult. It was difficult. And you're saying like, you, you seem very okay talking about rectal cancer now, and you've written a book and all these things, but surely back then it was, you felt embarrassed quite a bit with it. Um, I, I was pretty good that um, I, I'm a pretty open book when it okay. comes to things. So I went with the, the strategy of just, this is what it is. I have an ostomy bag, I have, you know, I'm wearing a bag of poop on my stomach and, you know, I tried to kind of cover it up a bit. My kids, you know, laugh at my kind of baggy clothes because it would hide my bag. Mm -hmm. But um, I was pretty open and honest so that it kind of broke the ice when people felt that it was difficult. Mm, Yeah. In that, just you're saying you're an open book. You also, I was flipping through looking at things I had underlined in your book. And I, first off, I love your writing. It is beautiful and humorous. And I also want to start using some more British words like rubbish. I'm like, man, that is, that is a good word right there. But I found this quote that said, I didn't want to look for beauty in the ashes. I wanted to sweep the ashes away. That is so profound and I completely have been there. What part did grief play in this where you just want to sweep the ashes away? You don't want to look for something good in them. Yeah, it's a difficult one because on the one hand, there is always beauty in the ashes. And by focusing on the beauty and focusing on the goodness, it actually lifts our spirits. I have a whole chapter on practicing gratitude. I mean, there is... There is reason that we're told to give thanks in all things because physiologically it does things to us. It can lower our heart rate. It can, um, you know, de-stress us and release feel-good hormones. And as I say, you know, we don't have to see things differently to be grateful. Just be grateful to see things differently. So it does do stuff to us physiologically, spiritually, emotionally. But at the same time, I think there's value in acknowledging that that is just hard. We just want it all to go away. I didn't want to be in the process of trying to grieve my mom and my sister because, of course, that I was still grieving Joe. Mm -hmm. But I find that when you lose one thing, it brings up all the other losses and you re-grieve them. And then my cancer, I was grieving things that I couldn't do, grieving things that I worried I would never do again or would never get to do. And so there's this whole kind of 
perfect storm of grief. And there were times when I'm like, I just don't want to look on the bright side. I don't want to be grateful. I just want it all to go away. And I think there is honesty and value in that vulnerability. That is our lament to God, just saying, when will it end? How much longer? And it's almost like once we get that off our chest and acknowledge it, and I'm not saying we sweep the ashes under the carpet and bury them because I'm a firm believer that one day we'll trip over this enormous lump of mm-hmm. ash under our carpet. Yeah. But just by releasing it, there's power to be able to say, okay, now I'm ready to see the beauty in the ashes, to see the rubies in the rubble and to give thanks for what I can see. And yeah. even but what It's like I can't. you can't get to that point if you're just suppressing and sweeping So, and something else I love, and this is your tagline, I think on your Instagram and everything else. I'm like, man, I should have thought of that because it's so good. But if I get it correct, you say you don't have to be, live a pain-free life to live a full life or something. Yeah. Life doesn't have to be pain-free to be full. So in that, what does that look like? And we can go into Jeremiah 29 if you want, because I want to talk about that. And I think that relates as well. So we have the grief kind of a roller coaster where you, I think, express it, can then go gratitude and maybe back and forth the same day. But in all of that roller coaster, how is it still full? Well, I'm a firm believer that Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. And that's an abundance. In fact, it actually talks about it being in excess and to overflowing. So he has come to give us such an amazingly full and rich life. But he also said, you know, there will be troubles, there will be storms. And I really think that today, what we do is we separate those. And we have said, well, You either have the abundance or you have the storms. Life is either good or life is either bad. And we've separated them. And what we've done is we've elevated what we think of an abundant life to be this happy, skippy, healthy, wealthy, perfect life that we see on Instagram and Facebook and the media. And so that is what we're aspiring to. So when we have something that sideswipes us, when we're going through something that is difficult, or even just the daily grind of overwhelm and action lists and things, we think, well, I'm going through a rough time now, so my abundant life must be waiting off in the future for me. My full life must be on hold. And I really think, A, that's wrong theologically, because he never said they were separated in time and space. But also we're trying to reach for and attain something that is not scripturally correct. This fullness, this abundance isn't health and wealth and ease. It is intimacy with him, intimacy with others. It is peace right in the middle of the storm. It is comfort and strength. It is so much richer than a healthy, wealthy, easy life. And so I'm a firm believer that life doesn't have to be pain-free to be full that right in the middle of the pain it can be full is that ruining things do you want me to what kind of dog is it postman i have two they're golden doodles and do you love them are they everything that people say oh they're wonderful we're debating i keep going back and forth on the puppy roller coaster so like i want one too much work we'll see yeah it's all about temperament yeah. Get get a good temperament okay. dog. Um, so pain-free but full. So I don't know if you remember, sometimes I look back at my book, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I wrote that. Because it's been, you were saying, almost two years <laughs> since your book came out this summer. But you talk about the second part of Jeremiah 29. And I would love to dig into that because the verse that everyone knows is, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope and a future and prosper you. But there's another part. I love the second half of Jeremiah 29. So will you talk to us a little bit about that and what that looks like living this full life? Mm. Yes. When we think of that well-known verse, again, where there's a tendency 
to say these plans he has for us are off in the future when life is easy. And when we actually look at the context of Jeremiah and where the people of Israel were when he wrote it, they were in captivity. They were held by the Babylonians. Their lives were hard. They were enslaved. It was tough. And what the God was saying was, I have plans to prosper you. And then he goes on and says, I want you to marry. I want you to build businesses. I want you to plant crops. He's saying, right here, I have plans for you. Yes, I have plans for you in the future, but I also have plans to prosper you right now, right where you are. So stop waiting for life to get better. Start living it now and start experiencing all I have for you right in the middle of captivity, right in the middle of your hardest moments. And so it was such a lesson to me to, to do the same thing, to get on with life and stop waiting for my cancer to be over. Who knew if it would ever be over or if it, you know, what would happen? And so it was just this wonderful reminder. It's as if God is saying to us, stop waiting. You could spend your whole life waiting. There's always something to sideswipe us, grind us down. And you'll miss all I have for you Mm -hmm. if you wait. Well, it makes me think of Daniel. Uh, Jeremiah and Daniel are my two favorite books of the Bible, uh, which is fun. But Daniel, you know, if he had been waiting for, oh my gosh, like whenever we go back to Jerusalem, I mean, you wouldn't see any of those stories right? And look what God did with his life. But he never got to see where he was taken from again, ever. And Moses never made it into the promised land. I mean, Mm -hmm. Hebrews 11, right? You have that whole hall of faith. And then it's like, and none of them saw, they only saw from a distance what was promised to them. Okay, who's your favorite known character in the Bible? And who's your favorite obscure character in the Bible? Mm. Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. I love Mary, who is obviously quite well known. I think most Mm -hmm. people have heard of Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, There are a number of Marys. But what I love specifically about her is the moment when the angel shows up. Mm -hmm. And there's the line when she says, and she pondered these things in her heart. And then later, a few verses on, it just says, she responded with, let it be to me as you have said. And, and I talk a little bit about Mary in the book because what the angel was actually saying was, you're going to get pregnant out of wedlock. You are 13, 14, and this could lead not just to you being ostracized and cast out of your family and your town, but you could get stoned to death. Mm-hmm. But this is what the Lord has for you. And I think of her at sitting there with this angel present and she's pondering it. And I'm thinking, is she going to, debating in her head is she thinking really I can't what you know back forth back forth and then she just trusts and says okay I'd rather have your plans than my plans Mm -hmm. even if I don't know where your plans are going and it could be dangerous let it be to me as as you have said and and I think if she was 13 14 maybe and if I could have an ounce of that trust and faith and walk that journey, I would right. be If God amazed. said, you're, I'm going to give you cancer, but it's going to be used to write a book and it's going to be used to bring people to my kingdom and everything else, right? Could you sit there and say, yeah, okay, let that be done to me. Yeah, exactly. And it could mean that you, you die. So I love that. And then the not so well-known character that I love is, well, I talk about a lot of forgotten women of the Bible or lesser known women of the Bible Mm -hmm. in my book. And I talk about Jochebed, Moses's mom. Mm -hmm. And, and I think she gets forgotten a little bit, 
but the faith with which she set Moses adrift is just wonderful, you know, and, and I'm even amazed that she managed to keep him quiet for <laughs> three months. And so, yes, I love her. I, um, gosh, yes, the book is full of them. So it's yeah, hard so let's to talk use. about your book a little bit. What is the format and what is your hope for someone picking up this book? What do you hope that they get from it? Mm. Well, my hope is that people will stop waiting. If life has fallen apart and they've put life on hold and they are really struggling in a time when life has sideswiped them for any reason, that this book would be the toolkit for them to start living life to the full, grabbing hold of it and really living it. It's down to earth. It's super practical. And the format is one where I share seven tools, seven practices for thriving and not just surviving. It's about breaking out of survival mode because when something happens to us, we either hold our breath and we feel like we can't breathe or we're just pounded and pounded and pounded and we feel like we can't catch a breath. And so my hope is that people will breathe again that they will break out of that survival mode and thrive. And I give them seven ways to do that, seven tools, practices to use to do that. And each chapter is a tool and each chapter shares a bit of my story, a bit of somebody else's story, another thriver, as I call them, and then a bit of an often forgotten woman of the Bible story. And then I give people questions to help them dig in because I don't know about you, but I'm a very literal person. So I'm not very good at gleaning the learnings unless I'm told them. You know, when I read a memoir, I enjoy the book, but I don't come away going, oh, now I need to do X, Y, Z. I need to be told a little bit. So there are questions to go further. There are prayers to pray. Um, so yes, my hope is that somebody will read it and yeah, break out of survival mode. And yeah. Start well, it's definitely the kind of book, first off, I already said this, but it's so well written. And I, with the tea, I think I actually made tea during it. And it's just, it's so easy to read and yet so full of meat right? That you have to really sit there and think with. And so I hope everyone can get this and grab a copy because it's not just a book that you read, right? It's a book that is going to hurt probably, but you're going to leave, if you do what you suggest, hopefully a different person, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's meant to be part cheerleader in your journey, Mm -hmm. part spiritual mentor coach, you know, I'm not a spiritual director, but it's, you know, that kind of feeling part best friend, you know, and super down to earth. So yeah, the idea is that we walk together. It's as if we're sitting down having a cup of tea and now you've heard my voice. You'll, you'll hear my voice because I write with an English accent. I couldn't help it. I love it. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's like, come on, now we're going to do this. Now we're yeah. going to look at and that. And then tell us about your podcast as well. When did that launch and your heart behind all that? It launched last autumn and it is called Chemo Chair Prayers. And it's for anyone going through cancer. And again, it's a short, down-to-earth, story-based, devotional-style podcast. So most weeks it's just me. But once a month I have a chemo chair chat where I have a guest who's been through or going through cancer. And we talk about one of the main struggles that we deal with when we're going through cancer, fear, anxiety, trusting God, loneliness, anything. And I share a bit of, you know, what I've been through and some encouragement. And then we pray together. Um, I have a guided prayer practice that I use each week with the acronym um, TRUST. So yeah, it's been great fun. It's people are finding it really helpful in um, not just encouragement, but being prayed for and being prayed with. And it's, I've 
kind of structured it in a way that people can make the prayers their own as well. So chemo chair prayers, it is what it says it is. Obviously people are listening to you right now, but your voice is just so easy to listen to that I love listening to your podcast because like, man, it's just like my British friend talking to me in this beautiful voice about Jesus. Like what more could you ask for? <laughs> I love that. Oh, I'm so glad. Yes. Another thing, I'm just like reading quotes that I have from your book, but I love this what you said. You said, "It's one thing to admit you're not a perfect pastor's wife, but it's another thing entirely to accept the laying on of hands for a tumor lodged in your backside." Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Can you what thing in that? Oh, a huge part. We have a wonderful church and they really rallied. And we're the kind of pastors that lead from the front with vulnerability. We're not, you know, we, I jumped off that perfect pastor's wife pedestal within weeks of arriving here. <laughs> so that's never been an illusion. But interestingly enough, when I had, you know, we had the church who were really helpful and loving and prayed and brought meals and we had our close group of friends um, who were wonderful. But as far as the cancer community was concerned, I hate to admit it, but I didn't want anything to do with it. I, and I admit this in the book, I was arrogant. I felt I didn't need them. And there was nothing that my oncologist, my nurse navigator and Google couldn't help me with. I was afraid. I'd already lost Joe and my mum, and the thought of getting close to other cancer survivors who were, you know, more than likely to pop their clogs than the average person in the um, population. So there was fear, there was arrogance, there was so much going on that it just felt all too much. And I was just like, no, you know, although I was encouraged to find a cancer support group. And then I, did find a Facebook group um, called Colon Town, which is a great name for a colorectal cancer support group. (laughs) But in there, I met what I call my I get it people. So my friends and my family could sympathize. They could sit with me in the pain. They could help practically. But however much my hubby, as wonderful as he is, he doesn't know what it's like to have an ostomy bag leak in target. He doesn't know what it's like to sit in a chemo chair. He doesn't know what it feels like to actually have the diagnosis. He knows what it's like to be the husband of someone. So in that cancer support group, I found people who could empathize and not just sympathize. And it was actually there that I heard people call themselves not just cancer survivors, but cancer thrivers. And so it was there that this whole journey and lesson about thriving and not just surviving in the middle of the storm started. So community is quite well then your colon town colo town colon town is- yeah. I'm assuming not a Christian based thing, right? So for for someone who is sitting there, maybe they're in this headspace of, well, I know I need community, but maybe I've, you've been hurt by the church on this side and you don't feel like they can relate on that side. What would you say to someone finding these flaws or thinking that no one could really get it in, in either of those groups? I would say there are places and spaces out there. Um, So within Colon Town, there was a kind of subgroup that was for believers. There are Christian cancer support groups on Facebook group. But there are also people, I mean, um, you know, come and find community. It sounds weird, but by connecting with me, there's an element of community there, you know, on Instagram, on Facebook. And I can probably say this now, I'm not sure when this episode is airing, but um, my husband has announced that he's stepping down from um, leading City Church and will be leaving in May. And so over the summer and into the fall, we will be starting a Christian cancer support community. Wow. So people will be able to come and find us there. So if if you stay tuned to us, um, you know, just connect with me. Um, maybe get on my email list by downloading one of my resources or listen to the podcast. You will be the first to know, 
but there is there is space to find community and sometimes we have to look a bit harder for it but okay it that's like a huge bomb you just dropped I know, and I hope I'm allowed to say it. I think I can. You're the first to know. Breaking news. So, I mean, that's a whole grieving process on its own. Haven't you been there like 15 years? How long? It'll be 15. It'll be 14 and a half years by the time you leave. And then are you going to be staying in North Carolina? We are. We're not moving um, cities. We're not going to another church. We've felt very much when we were we came here that God called us here and to City Church. And we feel very strongly now he is calling us out of City Church. And at first we were like, we're called out, but we've no idea where to. Mm-hmm. But it's taping, taking shape and form. And we're hoping to be running a Christian cancer support group this time oh next gosh. year. So y'all are both going basically into full time creating this. That is yes. huge. Oh my gosh. You heard it first. Do you have a name yet? Or is that? <laughs> I think it's going to be just literally Christian cancer support. We wanted to call it Be Encouraged because that's the promise. We want to encourage people and equip people. But this is a kind of very online Google kind of ministry backend way of naming your ministry. But People don't often Google how to be encouraged. They Google, I want Christian cancer support. And so we want to be there for people when they are struggling. Mm -hmm. And so we're just going to, there's a, there's a brand of paint in the UK called Ronsil and their advertising has always been, it does what it says it is on the tin, on the can, because Mm -hmm. it says, you know, paints fences paints chairs you know and it's like it does what it so we are we are that we will do what we say we're going to do we're going to be a christian cancer that's amazing and so needed too that's so exciting and you have your books for people you have a you have one book more than one? one book yes and in january i think it's january i have a devotion coming out with harvest house called one minute prayers for women wow. with cancer january 2022 Two, yes. Okay. So I'm writing them right now, beavering away. How's the deadline process on that? Uh, They've given me till um, August, so it's not too bad. I'm doing what my husband calls chipping away. I do, Mm -hmm. you know, a few each day. Can you speak to, I don't know if we have any writers listening, but what is the habit behind, do you just sit down to your keyboard every day and you feel mass amounts of inspiration flooding from your fingertips? Uh, No. (laughs) I need to get better at practicing my craft. I have never considered myself a writer. I was thought to be dyslexic as a kid. I couldn't spell. I dropped English at 16. You can do that in the UK. I just kind of just passed the exams we took at 16. And so really from 17 onwards, I haven't written until I wrote a book more than a text, email, science paper. So, or thank you note, I guess. But um, so yes, I would never have called myself a writer until I really felt God calling me to share my story and encourage other people. And so I'm more of a writer who writes on an as needs basis. So when I need to write something, I write and I know that is not ideal. I know I need to get better at practicing my craft and sitting down and writing the words. You know, if you want to get better at anything, you have to actually do it. But there is definitely a discipline in sitting down and when the blank sheet of paper is staring back at you with a cursor blinking you just have to start and write something terrible but at least it's it reminds me of something else you said if you can't tell i loved your book but i have been trying to pray this way since reading your book where you talk about the father i believe it's in matthew who says help my unbelief right but you put that in with something 
different where you say, Lord, help my unwillingness. Lord, I am willing. Help my unwillingness. Lord, I, I want to forgive. Help my unforgiveness, whatever it is. And I've been trying to say that. What's the power behind that? The mental part of that? Talk to us about that. Yeah, I just love that. There's so much coming before Jesus and just saying, like, I believe you, but there's a part of me that doesn't. So would you help me with that bit? Mm -hmm. I'm going to be honest about it and share it with you. But at the same time, I can't overcome that hurdle on my own. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that I could pray that prayer in so many different contexts. Like you say, I could say, look, I'm really willing to trust you on this. Mm but there's a part of me that's struggling. So would you help me with that bit? Mm -hmm. And I'd rather come to you honestly than either fake it and just say, yeah, I trust you. And then, you know, my actions scream that I'm not, or just say, I, I don't want to trust you because that's not true either. And so, yes, in so many parts of my life, I'm saying I'm willing, help my unwillingness. You know, I trust, help my lack of trust. Mm -hmm. You know, I forgive that person, but there's some unforgiveness still mm -hmm. left. Would you help me? And it's been really helpful to be able to yeah, pray like it's that. it's changing my prayer life slowly but surely. And it's just part of renewing our minds. I think we think that it's just like, well, I'm going to memorize scripture and I'm going to beat myself over the head with it until my mind is renewed. And I think that's such a different approach that you're talking about. Yeah, it really is. I think, and I think God wants to be involved in the process of renewing our minds. You know, we are full of his spirit and he can work from the inside out. And you're never going to shame yourself into change. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't shame our kids yeah. into behaving. And so there's a kindness to ourself there. And yet I've been thinking about this too. I'm curious your thoughts on, it's interesting because people are quoting the great commandment is to love others as you love yourself. And therefore you can't love others unless you love yourself. But I recently read an author who's like, you don't need to love yourself because that's what a problem with our self-help culture is. That if you love someone else and look outside yourself first, you absolutely can do that. So how do we love ourselves and be kind to ourselves, but not turn that into a self-help spiral? I yeah, that's that a tricky sense? one. Yes. I think there, there's a balance like there is in so many different areas. You know, we're told to love others of ourselves and to there is value and it's not theologically incorrect to be kind to yourself and to rest, you know, mm -hmm. taking a biblical Sabbath to forgive yourself and others is a kindness, you know, forgiving others is a kindness to ourselves because yeah. I think it was Max Lucado who said not forgiving someone is like drinking, po um, drinking poisoning and mm -hmm. expecting them to die. Mm -hmm. So there is definitely a, an argument for, taking care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. But when that spirals away from so that we can bear much fruit mm -hmm. and becomes this self-seeking, self-focused, making ourselves the Lord of our lives, then it becomes mm -hmm. a problem. Well, this reminds me of your story that you shared. I thought this was one of the most powerful stories, maybe just because it hit me specifically, but you said you had a really good day amidst all of your treatments, and then someone came over who was bringing you food, and you were about to just shame yourself, right? How did you deal with that? What were your feelings in that? Yeah, so the way my chemo worked was, you know, it was on a cycle, so I would have treatment and the anti-nausea drugs would carry me through for a few days. Then I would have a week of feeling absolutely rubbish. And then I would kind of climb out of that. And towards the end of that week, I'd have a couple of days of feeling reasonably human. And then I'd have treatment again. And it was during that off week and towards the end when I was actually feeling okay. And we had people round for a drink on our porch. And that was the day my friend Noel was scheduled on the meal train to bring dinner. And as she walked up the drive with dinner, 
I just felt terrible because there was me chatting with some other friends with a glass of wine in my hand, not looking or feeling terribly sick at all. And I just felt so guilty. Surely I should have spent the day cooking or going to the grocery store or something. She shouldn't have to do that for me. And I started beating myself up. And thankfully, Noel is a wonderful friend and woman full of grace and she was like, oh my goodness, no, you must, you must enjoy this. And I've, my gift to you is giving you a day where you can enjoy your day and you're not spending the one day that you don't feel dreadful having to catch up and cook dinner and all the things. This is my gift to you to enjoy yourself. And I had to give myself permission to accept it mm-hmm. and to enjoy it. And, um, it was, it was a gift from her, but it was also a gift to me from me as well. It wasn't easy. Then you live so much more free, right? It's like the things that we crucify in ourselves, we think are the most painful things we don't want to do. And then we live in such freedom. Okay. I just realized that people listening who have not read your book are not following you yet. Don't know where are you now and what happened with your cancer and everything? Oh, thank you for asking. That's so kind. Um, I'm all good. So yes, I am. I have had the the all clear. It's been past five years. And so now, yeah, the chances of me getting even the same thing are about the same as anybody else in the population. So it's a real gift, but my heart is still very much with the cancer community and Mm -hmm. helping them not just survive, but thrive. I love it. Okay. I have a couple of things I want to ask you to do at the end, but before we do that, just going off this conversation, is there anything that is on your mind right now on your heart, that you'd like to share that we just haven't gotten to, or I have not asked about? I don't think so. My heart is really always to encourage people to stop waiting. You know, if you have put your life on hold if you have battened down the hatches and hunkered down, I want to encourage you to, to look up and look around you and start living life right where you are. And it's good to kind of batten down the hatches and be strong, but it's when we do to such an extent that we create a wall and a barrier around ourselves that we can't actually live and enjoy the life that we have. It might not look like we were hoping or had planned, but it doesn't mean it's not full and rich. And there is, there is beauty in the ashes circling back to that, Mm -hmm. but it just might be a different kind of beauty, but it's still rich and intimate. So yes, I, my heart is always to just say, stop waiting. And while they're at it, stop waiting. Good first step would be to pick up this book. Why such a good idea. Breathe again is the title. And then we're going to finish. I asked you before if you would do this. I'm going to turn to the page as well. Would you read your Thrivers Manifesto for us, please? Because I know you add on in each chapter, but I think it is so powerful. Of course, I'd love to. And just to explain where this manifesto comes from. Yes, as as we go through each chapter, we add on a little... um, piece of it about really saying who we are as thrivers and what being a thriver looks like. I should just say when people, if people go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever they normally get their books, hopefully a local bookshop, but um, there's another book that's recently come out called Breathe Again, written by Stacey Hennigan. It's also a really good book. So you might want to pick them both up, but mine is the red and yellow and orange one. It's very helpful. (laughs) Hers is kind of green and black and gold. But um, if you want to do a two two book deal, um, I would get them both. But yes, if you're after mine, you need the Breathe Again, How to Live Well When Life Is Hard. Y'all should do some kind of marketing thing together. We we did a little bit. She's going to be on the podcast. And I have a summit actually in the end of March, March 24th, uh, a Trusting God Through Cancer Summit. And she's going to be a guest on that. So um, we have have connected, which is great. But I didn't want people to pick up her book and go, she's not English. That's odd. (laughs) Okay. The Thrivers Manifesto. I am a thriver. I believe life doesn't have to be pain-free to be full. I reject the lies of the world about who and whose I am. I embrace the truth 
that I am loved, seen, and enough, and that God loves me, isn't mad, and will never leave. I've got this because God's got me, and together we can do more than I could ever do alone. I choose brave, knowing it doesn't need to be big, just intentional. I trust God, even when I don't want to and can't sense his presence, because I've checked his credentials and can let go of everything I've been clinging to. I lean into community, because thriving is a team sport and no one wins alone. I step into vulnerable spaces with God and others, aware that my strength can be my biggest weakness. I embrace the good, the bad, and the ugly of my journey, knowing the only way out is through, and there's life and healing to be found along the way. I practice gratitude in all things, confident that peace and well-being will follow. I reach out in small acts of kindness, gaining far more than I could ever give. I am a thriver, not just a survivor. I know how to find more when life hands me less. I have learned to breathe again. If I really let that sink in, I would tear up, but I was purposely not letting myself so that I could keep talking. So, so good. Nikki, I have one more request of you, and I didn't prep you for this, but because I know it won't be with the music and the background and everything that you do on your podcast, but I know prayer is such an integral part of what you do. Would you close us out in prayer, praying for people listening? I would love to. Thank you for asking. Yeah, let's pray. Oh, Father God, I thank you that you are a God that sees us and hears us, that you haven't kept a life of fullness and richness and overflowing on hold, but it's here for us now, no matter what we're going through. And Lord, I lift up to you everyone listening who's had life pulled out from underneath them, who feels like life has sideswiped them or they just can't catch a breath, that the waves keep pounding them and pounding them. Lord, would you show them your peace? Would you bring them your strength and your comfort? Would you bubble up joy inside them? Would you show them what your full and abundant life looks like, even in the midst of the most raging storms. And Lord, I pray for those women who are seeking and longing for community. Lord, would you help them find it? Would you place people around them that can not just offer sympathy, but empathy? Would you surround them with arms that can hug them, ears that can listen, hands that can make meals, and hearts that can understand? Lord, we thank you that you aren't mad at us. That's not why we're going through hard times, but you're mad about us, as someone once said. Lord, I thank you for who you are and whose we are. In the name of your son. Amen. Amen. There's nothing I can add to that, but I have to ask, you have such an intimacy with the Lord. For someone listening right now, how do they get that? How do they start praying? Because you listen to that. I'm like, man, she knows. She knows, my God. What's your encouragement for someone in in prayer? To just start. Really, we can feel like we have to get all our ducks in a row and we've got to find the right words and we've got to find the right place and the right time. Prayer is just a conversation with someone who is desperate to be with you and to help you and to hang out with you. And there's just as much listening as there is talking, sitting still, which I'm terrible at. Um, I'm an extrovert who's never met a silence she can't fill. So I have to get better (laughs) at listening in my prayer, but even just sitting with God. And as I talk about in the book, breathing in Jesus and breathing out whatever's weighing you down. And just then my shoulders relaxed and I was like, oh gosh, yes. Mm -hmm. I just got to stop wearing my shoulders as earrings. 
but yes, I just want to encourage people to start. There is no such thing as a bad prayer. The only bad prayer is the prayer you don't pray. And so just go for it. Tell him what you're thinking, how you're feeling. Awesome. I love it. Nikki, thank you so, so much for doing this today. You are absolutely welcome. I can't wait to connect with people. What a beautiful episode. I still can't get over the wisdom that Nikki has, how beautiful she is when she speaks, how beautiful she is when she writes, and just an incredible example of God's glory being displayed in her weakness. So please connect with her. Follow us both on Instagram at Tara Bradham at Nikki.Hardy. Be ready for our Pain to Praise book club in March. Grab her book, subscribe to her podcast, and we will see you again here next Monday.